to see everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, yeah, it's great to see you. Uh, I got back on Wednesday with a few of our other pastors from Turkey. Uh, we were there for a week and uh, in just God's providence, especially with everything going on related to the earthquake. The earthquake happened a few days before we arrived there. Uh, but we have an ongoing partnership and relationship with Turkey. And so it was good to, uh, good to be there. If you're newer to the church, the way we approach our kind of mission strategy is really kind of formed by Acts 1 verse 8. In Acts 1 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the kind of area right around them. Judea, which is the region that they're in, Samaria, which is a nearby area with a really different culture, and then the ends of the earth. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's kind of how we do it. So our Jerusalem is our local ministry partners that we're connected to and that we engage with and and serve and and partner with. Uh, Our Judea is really kind of the whole state of Arizona as we work with Redemption Church, one church made of 10 congregations to try to plant the gospel all over this overall region of the state of Arizona. Our Samaria, that area that's nearby but really different culture is uh, Juarez, Mexico. We do have a partnership with a ministry there. We do house building and clinics and lots of other cool stuff. And then our ends of the earth, we've decided really to zero in on Turkey. Rather than having a lot of different places around the world that we focus in, we're focused on Turkey. Uh, One of our pastors, Mark Burns, lived in Turkey for 15 years. He was a church planter and a pastor there. And so it just makes a lot of sense for us to do that. This was my fourth time going. And uh, we just had a a really, really uh, great trip. I'll give you a short update, and I think it actually leads us into what we're going to look at today. Um, A lot of our trip, really this time especially, was about connecting with leaders, trying to connect with the other pastors. There's another foundation, there's a foundation, a kind of network there of about 10 or 11 pastors from churches that are in, uh, kind of scattered all over Turkey, and they're partnered together. They're a little bit like redemption, right? They're working together for the sake of the greater good of the gospel. And we had a chance to visit a few of their churches and to gather with them. They had like a pastor's meeting and we got to go and pray with them. And uh, we, you can uh, see a picture of that. We, we gathered together and prayed with them, which was very cool. And it's just neat to see the long-term investment uh, that we've been making starting to pay off, starting to feel like, man, we, we keep showing up and we keep being there and God keeps working. Uh, we got to do ministry. Uh, Mark Burns got to preach at a couple different churches, uh, which was very cool. He uh, preached in Turkish for both of those. One of them they translated uh, for us. The other one they did not. And so that one I was like, Mark, it looked like a really good sermon. Um, But man, it was so cool. He was just so warmly welcomed. Uh, It was incredible. And then Seth also did a three-hour seminar. They asked him, one of the pastors there, uh, Bill Gay, who preached here at our church this past fall, uh, asked him to do a three-hour seminar on technology and the body. Uh, Some people drove more than two hours to come attend that seminar, and they were locked in it for uh, three Uh, It was about a three-hour seminar, and boy, Bill Gay had some gymnastics to do translating Seth Trout talking about digitization (laughs) and neo-docetism. It was a real hoot, uh, but it was was a great time. I got to spend some time uh, with Bill Gay and his team and his leaders. So we got to not just connect, we got to do some ministry, and then we just had a lot of fun together and uh, joked around a lot, teased each other a lot, had a really good time, and uh, learned a lot about each other. And so I want to show you probably the scariest photo that we took from this uh, picture or from this trip, here's, here's this terrifying picture. Um, it doesn't look that terrifying. You're just kind of looking at the old city of, uh, of Istanbul, right? If just normal folks, like that's what you see. You go, oh, it's the old city of Istanbul. But if you're Josh Yasuda, our student pastor, this picture is horrifying because you don't see the old city. You just see the birds. 
we found out that Josh Yasuda is terrified of birds. I mean, and right, this is a, there's a lot of water. So everywhere you go, he's just like head on a swivel, like looking for the birds. Where are the birds? They're going to get me. They're going to get me. It's totally irrational, but it's hilarious. Uh, it's awesome. Um, you know, we kept reflecting on how when, when the scripture says we should fear the Lord, that the fearing the Lord is having a hyper-awareness of the Lord. Well, Josh Yasuda has a hyper-awareness of the birds. Um, they, he was just horrified. But, but to his credit, I think he actually took this picture because he was trying to step into his fear and uh, face, face his fear. So it was just a really, really good time. And, and uh, as, it, as it leads into this passage, I, I just am mindful that there is actually a lot to be afraid of in this world. <laughs> Maybe not the birds, right? But, uh, but real things. Sorry, Yasuda. Um, there's a lot to be afraid of, right? There were a lot of fears even that some of you had for us as we were preparing to go. And you heard about the earthquake and uh, there's, there's fears going on, just the circumstances of the world. There's, there's fears of those who oppose your faith, right? The church in Turkey has experienced lots of opposition of people who come to faith and then their family gets really mad and their community that they grew up in with of conservative Islam in some cases gets really mad and it's just there's a lot of opposition. We experience similar kinds of oppositions but, but slightly different. There's a lot to be afraid of when it comes to just the fact that we're sinners. But if it's true that God is a holy God and that we are sinful and have turned away from him, that we disobey and we disregard him with our sin, the the things that he tells us not to do that we do anyway, and the things he tells us that are good that we should do that we don't do, if that's true, then not only is there like a lot to be afraid of in the world, but there's actually a lot to be afraid of of God. And so there's a... There's a scary reality to life in this sinful and broken world. And it's actually that sinful reality that is what this passage is talking about. We read just a moment ago just a few verses from chapter 44. Today we're actually going to look through Isaiah 44 through, or sorry, 43 through 44. So you really need a copy of the scripture today. If you don't have one, reach in the seat in front of you, grab a Bible, open it to Isaiah chapter 43. You're going to want to follow along with me as we go through this. Um, because as, as we look at this, these two chapters, it, it's fun. Sometimes I really like just looking at a couple verses. And sometimes it's nice to zoom out and look at a big section. When you zoom out, you actually can see some pretty cool patterns. That's some of what's going to happen in this passage today. But in these two chapters, here's the big idea of these chapters. Here it is. We fear not because the Lord acts in history to form and to redeem his people. I said we fear not uh, because over and over in this passage it's going to say fear not, fear not, fear not. In other words, we're not afraid. We're not afraid. We fear not because the Lord Yahweh, God himself, acts in history to form and to redeem his people. We're not afraid because God is at work in this real world, not just in ideas, but in history to form and to redeem his people. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to explore in these couple of chapters. Uh, Will you join me? And let's pray together. So, Father, uh, we thank you for your presence here among us. We ask you to move and to work to help us to experience your formation, your redemption, so that we don't have to be afraid. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, well, as I said, it's fun in this passage to zoom out and see what's going on here. And so really this section actually begins in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 42, verse 18. And, and here's really the pattern that we're going to see. We'll put it up here on the screen. And you see the, the left side is kind of is the first, the first pattern. And then the exact same pattern repeats in the next part. And so the pattern begins with a problem. In the first section, the problem is the captivity that Israel has experienced. Babylon had come into Israel and had taken them away back into Babylon. Babylon's like modern day Iraq. So it come into Israel, taken these people, pillaged all of their stuff, burned down their temple, took away their stuff, you know, all sorts of destruction, take them back away to Babylon. That's the problem in the first section. And then God acts and then uh, shows that the that idolatry really can't act. God, these other false gods can't do anything. And then the people end up praising, right? So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing, you see the same sort of pattern repeat, only instead of the problem being captivity, the problem is sin, but the same pattern emerges. There's a problem, God acts, idols can't do anything about it, and it results in praise. So let's just go through this a little bit. We're not gonna go verse by verse. Uh, through all of these sections, but I want you to see, I just want you to see this pattern. We can keep, keep this up on the screen and just, just as a way for you to, to kind of find your spot in here. So if you have Isaiah open, Isaiah 42, the first problem we see is this captivity. Isaiah 42, in verse 22, it says, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prison. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? And then this is important. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Who allowed this to happen? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So even their captivity is actually the result of their sin as well. But that's the problem that's being addressed at the end of Isaiah 42. So Isaiah 43 then, God acts. Look at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So God's saying, listen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did send you into captivity, but I'm also going to bring you out of it. Now, that's significant because if you look actually at history, nations that had been overtaken by other nations and carried off to captivity, they never came back. Like, never happens. And so God's saying, I'm going to do something that no one ever imagined you can do. So he says in verse 5, fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. All right, you get this? There's the captivity. And God's saying, I'm going to act. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to gather you home. Now, the main problem, the main thing that Israel had been doing that led them into captivity was their idolatry. So throughout this passage, God's going to go, hey, these false gods aren't doing anything for you. These idols are useless. Look at what he says in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. There's no real gods, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. So problem, captivity, God acts, 
Idols are powerless. And then look at this. God is praised. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel. I'm going I'm to destroy Babylon, he says. Thus says the Lord, he who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things of old, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? In verse 21, I'm doing this for the people I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So that's the pattern. Now, the pattern is going to repeat, only facing this issue of sin. And, and, and here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work through this as just kind of quick. Just want to make sure we understand it. And then, I, and then I'm going to come back and, and really drill in on the major takeaways that we should get from this. All right? So hang with me. Just a few more minutes. You ready? You like these Bible baths occasionally, don't you? It's kind of fun. It's okay to learn something at church. I don't know. Uh, all right, here we go. Second set of, of problem is, is sin. Verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. God's saying, hey, I got a problem. You don't call on me. What's he saying? He's saying, you're prayerless. Well, what's the problem with prayerlessness? Prayerlessness is functional atheism. Prayerlessness is saying, God, I got this. Prayerlessness is saying, God, I don't really need you. That's sin. I have not burdened you with offerings, he says in verse 23, or weird you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and have wearied me with your iniquities. We have a problem. Now, for Israel, it led them into physical captivity in Babylon. For us, it leads us into spiritual captivity. Captivity to pornography, captivity to greed, captivity to lust, captivity to bitterness, captivity to anger, captivity to debt. But the root problem of all that captivity is actually our sin. It's burdening the Lord with our sins. It's wearying him with our iniquities. It's not crying out to him. It's living as if he's not there. And yet, here's the good news. In the very next verse, God acts. Verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. It's amazing to me that one verse is like, you've totally worn me out. The next verse is like, and I'm going to forgive you. And in fact, if you read the Old Testament, you, you actually find this tension happens over and over where it's like the people are really sinful and yet God's really gracious and it doesn't quite make sense how he could, how he could really forgive them like this, which is why you have to eventually get to Jesus. Because in Jesus, you have the holiness of God and the forgiveness of God come together to forgive our sin. So God acts. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Chapter 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty ground. And streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Oh, Lord, do it. And my blessing on your descendants. God will act 
to heal us of our sin, to forgive us, to refresh us with his presence. Idols can't do it. Other gods can't do it. You can put your hope in the stock market, won't do it. You can put your hope in political parties, won't do it. You can put your hope in your money. You can put your hope in your family. You can put your hope in your marriage. You can put your hope in your kids' accomplishments. It won't do this for you. It can't deal with your sin. Idols never fail to fail, which is basically what he begins to say in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last besides me. There is no God. And then you have this long section. It actually turns less, like, from, it goes from poetry to just like prose in paragraphs describing the folly of idolatry. That what you have is people who look for a good tree, cut it down, and then look at verse 15. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself, right? So he chops up some lumber, warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, okay, so it helps him eat. Also, he makes a god and worships it. (laughs) He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Verse 20 sums it up. He feeds on ashes. That's what it is to look for other saviors besides the Lord. It's feeding on ashes. Isn't there an irony to that? He's eating this burnt wood, ashes. A deluded heart led him astray. He cannot deliver himself. And so this concludes with the idea that God is praised. This is what we read a moment ago, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified and Israel. This is our God. The God who makes even the trees, which idolaters cut down to worship, even the trees obey this God. Because this is the God not just of Israel, this is the God of all creation. And he's come to make all things new through the forgiveness of sin. So that's the pattern. That's what's going on in this passage. We zoomed out. We understand what's happening to some degree. Now let's zoom in and break apart this big idea. Again, here's the big idea. We fear not because the Lord acts in history to form and redeem his people. So the first part of that, we fear not. Three times we're told not to fear. Chapter 43, verse one. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Verse five. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. Chapter 44, verse two. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Fear not, fear not, fear not. One of the most common commands in all of scripture is don't be afraid. Right? It's what happens every time God shows up because God's so holy and God's so big. It's like, hey, hey stop, don't be afraid. Here's, here's the problem though. Like fear is existential, not intellectual, right? Like fear is like this just thing you experience. It comes over you. You don't generally choose to be afraid, right? You experience it, and then maybe you intellectualize a way that makes it worse, right? You can start to circle the drain on your fear, but like, it's kind of a weird thing that the Lord is like, hey, stop, (laughs) stop it, don't do that. 
It's like, well, yeah, but I can't help it. And so what I love about this, about this whole passage is it's saying, hey, I'm not just going to tell you to stop being afraid. I'm going to give you an experience of my love. Because it's not just intellectual, okay, I don't need to be afraid. It's you have to experience God's love if you're going to stop being afraid. Many of you know I have, I have four kids. Um, I have a lot of experience with them waking up in the night afraid, being scared. And when they come in after they've had a nightmare and they, you know, stand in right next to your bed like children of the corn, <laughs> right? And you like feel their presence. And you're like, what happened? And they start telling you about their fear, right? How, how, how much good does it do to say, well, don't be afraid, right? This is like telling your dog not to be afraid when it's losing its mind on the 4th of July. Stop it, it's just fireworks. Yeah, your dog doesn't understand that doesn't make any difference. It also makes no difference to tell your, your kid, hey, just don't be afraid. What you have to do is you have to grab them. You have to hug them. You have to hold them. You have to keep them in your arms. You got to say, I got you, buddy. You're going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. Stick with me. This is what God's doing. He's not just saying fear not. He's bringing us close. He's adopting us in. He's holding us firm. We fear not, not because it's just intellectually we shouldn't, but because we're having an experience by the Spirit of God that we are loved. We fear not. Next part of the sentence, we fear not because the Lord acts in history. Because the Lord acts in history. One of the things that's so interesting about this passage to me is that this passage is not just describing uh, theological ideas, or philosophical ideas. It's not even mostly about ideas. It's about history. Like to understand this passage, you have to understand some history. Right? Like the people of Israel lived in this place with these customs, with these practices, with this temple, and with these habits. And then in history, they got moved to this place and all these horrific things happened to them in history. Not ideas, in history, it really took place. And now they lived in a new place with new customs and new practices and new expectations. And all of this is about history. It's about real events. Here's why this matters. You're like, okay, you seem really passionate about this. I don't get why this matters. Here's why this matters. We're in a secular culture right now. And get this, secularism isn't mostly trying to extinguish your faith. It's trying to get you to keep it private. Believe whatever you want. Just keep it to yourself. As long as your religion is about your ideas and about your philosophies and about your theology, cool. Just keep it to yourself. But we don't have a, a faith. We don't have a doctrine. We don't have a God who can just be kept to yourself. Because God is not just about ideas. He's about history. He's acting in the world. He's doing things. Most significantly, he acted in the world to send his son Jesus to live a real life, born in a real place, obeying God in real ways, dying on a real cross, being buried in a real tomb, rising from that tomb and ascending to the Father. Those aren't ideas, that's history. And that's our faith. It's a historical faith. It's a real faith. It's not to be kept private. Don't, don't let the world do that to you. They don't care if you have, like, like, go ahead, have faith. 
just be private about it. By the way, this is why the, the secular world is always pushed. They don't have a problem with freedom of worship. They have a problem with freedom of religion. Because freedom of worship, well, that's private. That's just what you guys do when you get together on Sunday. But now religion is like my whole way of life. Ooh, we got a problem now. This is a God who acts in history. God acted the first big act of God's redemptive power in the Old Testament that these people would have been familiar with was the Exodus. God's people were in captivity in Egypt. Now they're in captivity in Babylon, but then they were in captivity in Egypt. And what God did was he sent Moses and he sent his power and he sent this huge opportunity for the people to be delivered out of captivity and to go through the waters of the Red Sea. It was this exodus. And look, here's what God's saying in this passage now. He's saying, okay, you're familiar with that past story. I want to tell you that's what I'm doing now. There's a new exodus happening. Look at verse 40, chapter 43, verses 2 and 3. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. What's he saying? He's saying, you know how they went through the waters? You're going to go through the waters. You know how they came out of captivity? You're going to come out of captivity. You're going to pass through the waters. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's what happened in the first exodus. The people of God are walking through and the waters have parted and they're in these huge giant walls of water and they're walking through and they get afraid because the chariots are coming after them and the chariots come in and the people get out and the water collapses on them and extinguishes them like a wick and God says, that's what I'm gonna do again in history. And in fact, that's what happens. The people of Israel come out of captivity to Babylon and they come back into their promised land. So there's a new exodus. There's going to be also a new outpouring. Look at chapter 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing to your descendants. Here's what I love about this. Listen, friends, we're not afraid because God acts in history. But get this. He doesn't just act in past history. This passage is saying, I'm going to act in your history right now. Your moment right now will someday be history, and I'm going to act right now. And so often we look to the past, and the best, freshest works of God are in the rearview mirror instead of through the windshield. And this is what God's saying, I want to do a new thing. I want to do something now. I want to show you now. I want to pour out my spirit now. I want... I want thirsty ground to soak up my water now. In February of 1970, a little town in Kentucky where there's a university called Asbury University, the Spirit of God poured out in February of 1970. One of the women who's a member of our church here was a student there. She was 17 years old. She was a freshman and As they had chapel one day, just something unusual happened and the Lord started to work and people who'd been enemies started to reconcile and ask for forgiveness. People who'd been hardened sinners began to get up and confess their sin and people just didn't want to leave the chapel and so they would pray and they would sing and they would pray and they would sing and they just went on for day after day after day after day. It was a, people would look back and call it the Asbury Revival and it spread because other people started to hear about this outpouring of God's power. And it, it wasn't filled with like weird stuff. There were no snakes. You know, it wasn't like 
people falling down and you know, laughing silly or something like that. It was, just, it was just a sweet experience of the love of God that was leading people to confess sin and to repent. And so a number of these students then would go to nearby universities and go to nearby churches. Uh, Debbie, the lady who was part of it, who's part of our church, um, she told me that, that that year, her and a group of friends, they just went and shared their testimony about what happened at Asbury on an Easter morning. They shared with eight different churches and hundreds and hundreds of people came to receive Christ and to confess sin and relationships were healed and a whole generation was set on fire for the Lord. And last Wednesday, it started happening again. And they're about 10 days into what seems like a new fresh work of God. I don't know what to call it. They're not even trying to call it anything. So everyone wants to label it and everyone wants to name it and everyone wants to you know, get in the middle of it. We're just trying to protect God's doing something. A few days or uh, two, two Wednesdays ago after chapel, a group of students, not a big group, just decided they didn't want to leave. And so they prayed and they sang and they prayed and they sang and God began to release that same sweet manifest presence. And students began to confess sin and students began to worship and students began to reconcile. And it's now been going on for 10 days. Tucker Carlson said, hey, we want to send a crew to film it. They said, uh, no thanks, we're good. Famous worship leaders have come and said, I'm available, I'll come lead. And they said, no, we're good, students have it. What if God wanted to do that again? What if this new thing was something the whole church got to taste and see being led by Gen Z? Holy cow, yes, please. More of it, yes. That's what God's saying. I wanna do a new thing. I'm not a God of the past. I'm not a God of ideas. I'm a God that's pouring out my spirit to you now. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. You don't have to freak out. The Lord acts in history. He acts in history next to form. Over and over, this word form shows up in this passage. Uh, in chapter 43, verse one. Uh, he who formed you, O Israel. Verse seven, who, who I formed and made. Verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself. Chapter 44, verse 2, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Chapter 44, verse 21, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you. One person said, God formed man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. God is forming us. God is creating us. God is fashioning us. And in fact, he goes so far in this passage to say, and you can't do it back to me. Verse 10, before me, no God was formed. And this is the folly of the idolatry in chapter 44, verse 9. All who fashion idols, fashion and form, it's the same word in Hebrew. All who fashion idols, who form idols are nothing. Who forms a god or casts an idol? He forms it with a hammer and works it with strong arm. Who gets to do the forming? God. God is doing a new thing and it's forming us. It's shaping us. Now, the danger of idolatry is not usually that the people of God leave God altogether and go worship idols fully. The danger of idolatry when you look through history is that what we try to do as God's people is combine the worship of God with idols. It's called, the, the fancy word for it is syncretism. You try to sync up real worship of God with worship of idols. This is what we do, right? We don't just want to leave Jesus behind, but we want Jesus and a comfortable life. We want Jesus and always feeling happy. 
We want Jesus and financial security. We want Jesus and the ability to call all the shots in my life. We want Jesus and a good reputation. We want Jesus and our political party. We want Jesus and a successful career. We want Jesus and passionate Romans. We want Jesus and the American dream. God, can I have it all? And he's saying, when you try to do that, when you try to sync up your idols with me, you're trying to fashion me. You're trying to form me. But I am the Lord and there is no other. I will be glorified, God says. I will do the forming. Which is why our response of faith is the response of Augustus Toplady in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I love that idea. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's what Jesus is forming us into. I don't need anything else. I just need you. You're enough. We don't have to be afraid because God's working in history to form us and to redeem his people. The last big word that shows up over and over and over is this word redeem. The word redeem means to reclaim as one's own. It's used often in the scriptures to describe a kinsman redeemer where uh, somebody would, would die and the widow would be left behind and so a family member would marry the widow in order to redeem her, in order to allow her to continue to have provision and continue to have property and continue to have the ability to pass on an inheritance. This redemption, this reclamation, this is what God's doing. In chapter 43, verse one, He says, uh, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Chapter 43, verse 14, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 44, verse six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his redeemer. Chapter 44, verse 22, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer. God is claiming us back. Listen, you don't have to be afraid. I don't know what you're afraid of today. But you can let it down. Don't just talk yourself into it. Experience the love of God who's saying, I'm doing a new thing in you. I'm bringing you out of that captivity. I'm pouring fresh water on you. God comes where he's wanted. He says, you want me? I'll come and I'll pour out my spirit. And I'll shower you with my love. And I'll form you into the image of Jesus as you turn from your sin. And as you put your hope in me, I'll form you. I'll redeem you. I'll claim you. Over and over he says, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. And so what is the answer? What is the response of God's people? Well, chapter 43, verse 21 says this. That they might declare my praise. Chapter 44, verse 23. Sing. Oh, heavens, for the Lord has done it. Listen, we don't sing because it's Sunday. We don't sing because it's church. We don't sing because that's just what we do. We sing because the Lord has acted in history to form us, to redeem us, to call us his own. That's why we sing. So, friends, let's sing. Oh, I don't have a good voice. Are you a sinner who's experienced grace? I don't care about your dumb voice. <laughs> Sing. We've got a God who's worthy of it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in history.
Thank you that we don't need to be afraid, that you're forming us and shaping us and renewing us. God, where there's need to confess sin, I pray that we would. Where there's need for reconciliation, I pray you'd grant it. Where there's opportunity to pray and to hunger for you, would you fill our hungry and thirsty and weary souls, we ask. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.